Hi everyone, my name is Isabel. Um, I'm from Deakin University. I'm, I'm currently studying psychology there. Uh, today I'll be reading from the word of the Lord for us. Uh, but first, let me just say a quick prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you God for your word. Please help us to understand it as we listen to Murray speak to us from the Holy Spirit. Um, as I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, I'll be reading for us from 2 Timothy and the whole chapter of chapter 1. Um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Louis, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the, the appearing of our Lord, Saviour Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Well, hi everyone. I am so delighted to be speaking at NTE in Victoria this year and really excited to open up Paul's second letter to Timothy. It's a wonderful letter. It's challenging. It's got amazing gospel riches in it. And it helps us understand what it is to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from each chapter, I'm going to open up a different theme about going with the gospel. In chapter 1 here, we're particularly going to look at verses 3 to 14 and think about going with courage. Going with courage. I don't know about you, but I find it scary when I'm entrusted with something precious. 
quite a few years ago now, our oldest daughter got married and she borrowed from her sister-in-law a tiara. It was an exquisite piece of jewellery, absolutely beautiful. We knew it was precious. What we didn't know is it was a family heirloom. The girl lent it to her and said, guard it with your life, which I guess was pretty ominous. Well, we tried. We tried to guard this thing with our life. But, you know, it was the night before a wedding. There were four bridesmaids in the room. There were clothes everywhere. It was crazy and excitable. And somehow that tiara ended up on the floor. Somehow it got buried under some clothes. And yep, it got stomped on by the foot of some bridesmaid. It was unbelievably awful. There were frantic attempts to try and find a jeweler. Uh, there, there were all sorts of tears and sadness. And then there were the most awkward apologies imaginable. We swore that we would never borrow something as precious as that again. But you know, in this letter, Paul is entrusting to Timothy something far more precious than a tiara. He is entrusting to him the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it also is under threat, not under threat from the stomping feet of bridesmaids, but under threat of attack from enemies of the gospel, false teachers, opponents of Paul and Timothy and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why is Paul entrusting this precious gift to Timothy? Well, you've got to remember what the gospel is. Now, the word gospel means good news. And in a way that almost underrates it, it's brilliant news. It's exceptionally good news. It's the best news in the world and it's news for the world. And Paul uh, had this great ambition to take the gospel to places that had not yet heard it. He wanted it to go to the ends of the earth. For the last 30 years, he'd been vigorously doing that across the Middle East and the Mediterranean. But now, somewhere around 65 AD, he was pretty much at the end of his life. And my mum, my who's getting on, uh, sorts through some of her possessions from time to time, looking at the things that she has that are precious to her, and she doesn't want them to just be chucked out when she's gone. And Paul doesn't want the gospel to just be chucked out when he's gone. He entrusts it to Timothy so that he'll preach it and teach it and entrust it to others. He'll preach it and teach it and entrust it to others. And so this precious gospel has been passed down for 2,000 years, and now it has come to us. We are entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ and entrusted with still taking it to the ends of the earth. But what will that take? What will it take for us to protect the gospel? and proclaim the gospel. Well, I think this opening chapter of 2 Timothy makes it really clear that one thing it will take 
is courage. It'll take courage. This letter won't let us get away with a sentimental or mushy view of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul writes this letter from a prison cell. Nero is emperor in Rome. Christians are being persecuted and some of them are being executed. Paul himself is in a hard-to-find dungeon somewhere in Rome. He's chained to a guard. He's on death row for his faith in Jesus. So he's not writing some academic thoughts about gospel theory. John Calvin said, This is written not in ink, but in Paul's lifeblood. This is a serious and passionate letter to Timothy. And Timothy is in gospel ministry in Ephesus. And it's a tough place to be at the time. There are false teachers there. There are enemies of Paul and of Timothy. There are opponents of the gospel. And there are people falling away from the faith. Timothy is not necessarily timid Timothy. That's sometimes the tagline that he gets because of one of the verses we're going to look at. But actually, Chris Green, in his book on 2 Timothy, talks about talented Timothy, trained Timothy, and trusted Timothy. This man is exceptionally good value. But the situation calls for courage, even on the part of someone as good as Timothy. And you know, I think we find ourselves pretty much in the same place today. Increasingly, you need courage to be a Christian. It, it hasn't always been like that in our culture. When I was a, a boy growing up, Christians kind of had the reputation of being nice, the, the good kids. Christians had the moral high ground. I used to get paid out for sort of being so good. But that's no longer the reputation of Christians. We have completely lost the moral high ground. Steve McAlpine in his book, Being the Bad Guys, says, only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy, the solution to what was bad. Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one of the guys, one option among many, a voice to consider, but to be, not to be followed unquestioningly. Now, he says, the tide has shifted further. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option. It's a problem. The cultural, political, and legal guns that Christianity once held are now trained on us. That means it takes a whole lot more courage to be a Christian now than it used to. Sometimes it takes courage just to say that you are a Christian. To my shame, I've sometimes found myself on the train commuting and I wanted to hide the overtly in-your-face Christian book that I'm reading from the person next to me because I don't want to be judged. It takes courage to share your faith with a non-Christian friend. And we can find all sorts of reasons for now not being the right time for that. 
It takes courage to stand up for Christian values, courage to voice our views about marriage and sex and gender. Now, maybe you've found yourself trying to dodge those conversations because you know they're so awkward. And we need courage not only to voice our views, but to live them. Courage to say no to what God says is wrong. Courage to use our time and money in a way that prioritizes the gospel and not ourselves. Courage perhaps to say no to an attractive career option or maybe say no to your parents' aspirations because of a deep sense of, of, of what God is asking you to do. Maybe even courage to leave Australia at some time in the future to serve in another part of the world where Christians are overtly persecuted for their faith in Jesus. My question is this, how can we be courageous enough to be deeply committed followers of Jesus Christ in our culture? Well, in this chapter, I think Paul gives us three wonderful reasons for courage. The first is this, the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit. As a kid, I used to love uh, sitting by the open fire. Dad would have it roaring. Uh, and then as the night uh, wore on, the, the fire would dim down. And late in the evening, we might sometimes toast crumpets on a fork. But what I really enjoyed was the next morning when if Dad had really had it roaring, that next morning there were still glowing embers in the fireplace. And I'd come along and I'd try and blow on them and put little bits of paper on them and wee twigs and see if I could reignite the fire. And that's what Paul talks to Timothy about needing to do spiritually. Look at verse 6. For this reason, he says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, there'd been some pretty good fuel on Timothy's fire. We're told back in verse 5 that he'd been raised by a godly mother and grandmother who taught him the scriptures from infancy. It's quite likely that he was then converted to Christianity by the Apostle Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. And then he'd been recruited by Paul from, for an MTS apprenticeship. Now, how good is that? Can you imagine what it'd be like to have Paul as your trainer? I know you have amazing AFES trainers, but Paul, like it takes it to next level. The greatest theologian of the day, this um, incredible church planter, and he's your trainer. Uh, it, it speaks in verses three and four about this close relationship. Paul loves him. He's praying constantly for him. And you can imagine, you know, Timothy's got some, some hard questions. Oh, text, text Paul. Hey, Paul, can we, uh, can we do coffee? I've got some questions about, like, what's the election free will thing? What's the go? Imagine having Paul as your trainer. Timothy has been wonderfully equipped by the apostle. And then there has come a point where he has been set aside for gospel ministry Paul talks about laying hands on him. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, it seems the body of elders had laid their hands on him, set him aside for ministry. And I think that's what the gift is that he has been given. 
fan into flame, the gift of God. I think it's the gift of gospel ministry, the gift of being a preacher and a pastor and a, a, a church leader and a gospel worker. And Timothy has to keep that flame burning brightly. It's easy for spiritual fire to die down, isn't it? We often start well. Maybe when you were first saved, you were incredibly excited about Jesus and the gospel. But over time, that passion and enthusiasm can die down. You start a new ministry and you're really prayerful and excited about it and intense about it. After you've done it for a year or two, it's old hat and you, you just sort of roll it out again. You come to a conference like this and it's so exciting and encouraging. And yet the risk is that in three, four, five days time, the fire has died down. And you know, nothing snuffs out the flame like opposition. People give you a hard time. They question your gifts. They say that you're wrong. And it quenches our flame. So how do we keep the flame of gospel passion and courage burning brightly? Well, I think Paul's advice is brilliant. He, he doesn't focus on us. He doesn't say, now, come on, you've got to believe in yourself and you've got to stir yourself and you've got to be more disciplined and you've got to try harder to keep this thing going. That's, that's not his advice. Look at what he says in verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The spirit spoken of here is not our spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. I think it should have a capital S there. The Holy Spirit is not timid and he doesn't make us timid. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of power and love and self-control. As the spirit of power, he uses us even in our weakness. We feel inadequate. We feel nervous. We feel unsure of ourselves. We step into a ministry role and we feel overwhelmed. We step into a conversation and we feel ill-prepared and don't know how to navigate it. And, and I have to say, to, to be honest, that has been the default setting for my own mindset throughout my time in ministry. Uh, I constantly feel insecure and inadequate and unprepared. But what a wonderful thing this is that I'm not doing it on my own, and neither are you. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, dwells in us. And He helps us endure when we would otherwise give up. And He moves us to speak up when we would otherwise be silent. And He takes our poor efforts and produces great gospel good through them. And afterwards, we know that it was not us. It was God at work. But that power of God at work within us does not make us brash or impulsive. The spirit of power is also the spirit of love and self-control. As the spirit of love, he is able to work love in our hearts 
we, we find to our surprise, perhaps, that we, we love this person who's really difficult. We find a, a deep burden in our hearts for lost people and needy people or broken people. We, we might even find we actually really care about people who are opposing us and giving us a hard time. We have good friends who are serving in gospel work in South Asia. And for years and years, they had a heart for a particular people group there. And they prayed about it and, and it would not go away from them. Year after year, they were thinking and then starting to plan and prepare. And now they've moved there and they're learning the language. And they've taken their two young girls and they're raising them there. And I look at that and I'm like, how could you do that? Like, how could you go and learn another language? And it's the first of two or three languages they'll have to learn. How can you take your kids and raise them there? Well, I think the answer is the Holy Spirit had laid on their hearts a love for that people group. And when we love people, we do what we would otherwise avoid. So was it, was it rash? Was it foolish for them to go? The third thing it says here about the Holy Spirit is that he's the spirit of self-control. But more literally, you could translate that the spirit of sound-mindedness. The Holy Spirit gives us a clear head. He gives us a discerning mind. We face competing agendas. We face difficult decisions. We face strong temptations. And the Holy Spirit can give you a clear mind to do what is right. This is the wonderful work of the Spirit. So get your eyes off people. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off your circumstances. And get your eyes on to the Holy Spirit. I love the story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher in London in the 19th century. There's the story, I, I assume, I hope it's a true story, the story of what he would do as he went up the steps to the pulpit where he preached from in London. There were 21 steps up to that pulpit, pretty high pulpit. And on every step, he paused and said, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. 21 times as he went up to go and open up God's Word. Do you? Do you believe in the power and the love and the self-control of the Holy Spirit? If you do, you will have far more courage to serve God no matter what the cost. That's the first reason for courage as we go with the gospel. We don't go alone. We go with the presence of the Holy Spirit. The second reason that Paul then goes on to, verses 8 to 10, is the grace of the gospel. Not only the presence of the Spirit, but the grace of the gospel. Paul begins the next verse, verse 8, with the word, Therefore, therefore, be because God has given to you this gift of ministry, and because he has given to you the Holy Spirit, therefore, he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
Now there's a choice there that we have to make. You can either be ashamed of the gospel or you can suffer for the gospel. <laughs> what a choice. If, if we're ashamed of the gospel, then we'll tone it down. We'll massage it a bit. We'll moderate it. We'll remove some of the more offensive bits. We'll be more cautious in the way that we put it. We'll want to make it more palatable. We'll censor the gospel effectively. And we'll avoid identifying with Jesus when it's not cool to do so. If, on the other hand, we're unashamed of the gospel, then we'll speak it openly and there will be a cost. Paul is making it very clear in these verses that gospel faithfulness and suffering go hand in hand. You know that phase some kids go through when they're totally embarrassed about their parents. <laughs> Maybe you're still in that phase. I remember it well, but I remember even better being the embarrassing parent. You know, we, we make dad jokes at the most inappropriate times. And our kids roll their eyes and just want to melt. We try to be friendly to our kids' friends. And our kids are thinking, Dad, they're my friends. Like, just give it a break. Don't try to befriend them. We, we talk about something on social media and show that we're on the cutting edge of 1995. Of course, while their parents are so embarrassing, they don't feel that way about their friends. Their friends can be as stupid as they like, and they, well, they're fun, they're cool, they're good to be with. So my question is this. Do you treat the gospel like an embarrassing dad or your best friend? The gospel can seem a bit embarrassing, can't it? It's talk about sin is pretty awkward. It's talk about judgment is so culturally inappropriate. Actually, even its promise of being saved through believing in Jesus is, if you think about it, pretty weird. And it always has been. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that Jews look for miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, for sophisticated reason and argument. But he says, our message is Christ and him crucified. We believe that a Jewish man put to death by Roman execution rose on the third day and is the saviour of the world. I think we often lack gospel courage because we're a bit embarrassed about what we believe. And so now in verses 9 and 10, Paul repeats the gospel to Timothy. He knows it inside out already. But every single one of us need to hear again and again what the gospel is and why it is so good. 
look at these verses. He says, leading into it at the end of verse 8, share and suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now here it comes, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's a, it's a wonderful summary of the gospel. And it starts with this. He saved us. He saved us from our sin. He saved us from the mess that some of us were making before we knew Jesus. He saved us from eternal condemnation. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I think over some of the sins of my life, some of the failures of my life, and it is just such good news to know that I am forgiven, that I have been saved from that. And not only did he save us, but then he called us to a holy calling. He says, he, he calls us away from a life of sin into a life of relationship with the holy God. And again, what a wonderful thing. What a, what a marvelous thing it is to know God and to have relationship with him. Uh, by the grace of God in our hearts, we've, we've come to enjoy God. We've, we've come into a relationship where we talk with him and where we are keen and desirous to serve him. That is all his grace. And, and again, I, d I don't know about you, but I'm in a place now where I cannot possibly imagine life without Jesus. I've been called to this holy calling of following Jesus, and it is the best life I can imagine. And, and Paul then presses on us, that is all of grace, not works, not because of our works, it says, it's not because of your effort. It's not because of your achievement. God didn't call you to a holy life because he saw some promise in you, because he saw a bit of potential. Well, she's, she's not bad. He's, he's pretty good. I think we could work with that one. Uh, it's not because of anything you did in your past. It's not because of your grades. It's not because you are cute. I can't actually see you. I have no idea whether you're cute or not. Maybe one or two of you are. That's not why God chose you. We're told actually this grace was determined before the world began, before we even existed or had done anything. Back before the beginning of the ages, God planned to save and he planned to include you and me in that plan of salvation. And so next he says, that in grace he sent his son. He sent Jesus Christ to live for us and to die for us. He lived the holy life, the righteous life in our place, living the life we never could. And then he died a death in our place. And I love the phrase that Paul uses here. Christ appeared and he abolished death. Isn't that a brilliant phrase? Jesus Christ put death to death. He defeated death. He abolished it, obliterated it by dying in our place and then rising victorious over it. Death is the wages of sin. When those sins, when that wage is fully paid, then he rises victorious and, and death no longer has a grip on us. And so he gives us 
life and immortality, is what Paul says. We have the promise of eternal life. We need not fear death. And we know that this life is but the prelude to life forever with God. And Paul is really saying this. Don't be embarrassed about the message that saved you. Don't be embarrassed about the only message that can save and change other people's lives. Don't treat Jesus like an embarrassing dad. He is your best friend. The more passionately we believe the gospel message, the more courage we'll have to live it and speak it. Passionate belief generates courage. Passionate belief generates courage. We've seen that actually, haven't we, with the, the whole vaccination debate. Some people passionately believe that this is the only way out of the pandemic. And therefore, it's absolutely inexcusable not to get vaccinated, legislate it. And other people just as passionately believe that no one has the right to tell them what medical procedure they should have. They think it's absolutely inexcusable to ban someone from work or a cafe or a church on the basis of their vaccination status. People who have passionate views are motivated to do stuff, aren't they? What do they do? They write, they speak, they protest, they legislate, they advocate because it's a passionately held belief. Well, friends, we have far more reason to be passionate about the gospel than about vaccination. Far more is at stake. Relationship with God is at stake. Eternal destiny is at stake. And the more you've been blown away by the love of Jesus, the more the goodness and grace of the gospel has melted your own heart and left you thinking, Lord, you have been so kind to me and I'm so thankful my sins are forgiven and so glad I now know you and so, so thankful for this new life in Christ. The more you love the gospel and what it's done for you, the more passionately you believe that that is the only way to go, the more you will have courage to speak for Jesus and live for him no matter what. Here are the first two powerful reasons for gospel courage. The presence of the Holy Spirit in us. The grace of the gospel that has saved us. But there's one more powerful reason in this chapter for us to have gospel courage. And that is the power of God. The power of God. Paul's urging Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel, but he says there already in verse 8, but suffer for it by the power of God. And then down in verses 11 and 12, Paul effectively adds his own personal testimony. He's been talking about the gospel, and then in verse 11 he says, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. So there's this connection again. If he's going to be a preacher and teacher of the gospel, he's going to suffer. The two go hand in hand. But now, look at what he says in verse 12. 
but I am not ashamed. That's what he's urging on Timothy. So why is, why is Paul not ashamed? For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I'm just so struck by that phrase. He says, I know whom I have believed. Paul certainly knew what he had believed. He wrote 13 letters that made the cut for the New Testament. He knows his theology. He knows gospel truth. But the gospel is personal. And so he says, I know whom I have believed. He knows God. And he says, and I know God is able. Able to do what? Well, it's an interesting uh, little issue in the text here. Literally, it says, he is able to guard my deposit. Now, that could either be what Paul has deposited with God. He's able to guard my life that I've entrusted to God. Or it could be the other way around. The deposit could be what God has deposited with him. He is able to guard the gospel that he's given me. And I think actually in the context, it's probably that second one. It doesn't make a lot of difference at the end of the day. But God has entrusted to us the gospel. And he's saying, and I know the power of God to guard what he has committed to me. My five-year-old granddaughter came around a few weeks ago. And she was pretty keen to have a go at my 120-year-old violin that I used to play in a former life. I was going to say I got it new when I was a little boy, but that's not entirely true. Uh, it's a very old fiddle, and she wanted to have a go. So I entrusted it to her, sort of. I let her hold it and scrape some horrendous sounds out of it. But as she held it, I did too. As she scraped with the bow, I was holding her hand and the bow. As she moved from string to string, I was holding that bow and moving it from string to string and helping her to make these wickedly awful sounds. And she was proud as punch. God has entrusted to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the best news in the world and he's put it in our hands to speak it and preach it and proclaim it and teach it and pass it on. Look at verse 13. Timothy is to follow the pattern of sound words that he's learned from Paul. Verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. These are both ways in which Paul is again saying to Timothy, guard it, protect it, watch over it, be faithful in your ministry. Don't distort the gospel, pass it on. But as Timothy does that, God has it all in hand. He'll guard the gospel. He'll ensure that every single one of those he's chosen from before the creation of the world will be saved. He will make sure that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, to every people group. And with all 
firmly in his hands, he says, now you play some notes. Go on, speak, and I'll work through you. Serve, and I'll make sure that what you do is ultimately good for the gospel. Oppose false teaching, and as you do so, I'll guard the gospel. Stand up and say what's right. And as you do that, I'll enable you by my Holy Spirit. Friends, God wants us to have gospel courage. Courage to be unashamed of the gospel. Courage to suffer for the cause of Christ, if that's what it takes. Courage to go perhaps around the corner or to the ends of the earth with the astoundingly good news of Jesus. The courage is not found deep down inside yourself somewhere. It's found in knowing the presence of the Holy Spirit, knowing the wonderful grace of the gospel, and knowing the power of God who is with you. As an ordinary Christian, you can have extraordinary courage. Think of the courage of ordinary Christians in places like North Korea and Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia. They're actually people just like you or me. They're no different. They're ordinary men and women, young people, children. And God gives them extraordinary courage. He gives courage to his people. He gives courage to you and me. Courage to tell your friends about Jesus. Courage to live a holy life when all around there's pressure not to. Courage to step out of a secure job in order to invest more in the work of the gospel. Courage even to leave Australia if God lays that on us in order to do gospel work elsewhere. Courage, whatever we do, to burn white hot for Jesus.